Good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be here with you again tonight as we continue our series, Bad Attitudes. And tonight we're picking up where we left off last time. Last time we were in the story of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings and in Isaiah. And tonight we're going to flip over to the next story, which is the story of his son Manasseh. And the interesting thing is that in Hezekiah and Manasseh, we see one of the best and one of the worst kings of Judah. Now, last week we saw that with one of the best kings of Judah, King Hezekiah, who, who unlike most of the kings of Judah and all the kings of Israel after Solomon, was completely, they, they were all completely unfaithful to God. And, and even the somewhat good ones were at least moderately unfaithful and left the high places in place. Hezekiah cleaned things up. Now we're going to turn to his son, and we're going to think about what happens as the baton is passed to the next king who's charged with leading God's people and representing God to the world. You see, he doesn't do a very good job, and he seeks after the things of the world, and it has lasting implications for God's people. As we go into that story, let's come before our God in prayer and ask that he would help us to think about what lasting implications there might be from our actions. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we often think of our own actions in isolation. We think of, of how they affect us in the moment, how they matter to us and our happiness. But you call us to care about something more. You call us to care about what it does for your kingdom and, and for the people who, who haven't even been born yet, the, the generations ahead how they'll know you or not know you. Lord, you use us as, as your instruments. And so, Father, would you help us that we would, would keep that in mind with every choice we make and that by the power of your spirit, we might make the right choices, the ones that are pleasing to you and testify to your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be thinking a lot tonight about what it looks like to to be pleasing to God and not pleasing to God, and what we do when we realize that we're not being pleasing to God. And if you know anyone that's been wrestling just with what it looks like to live a godly life, and if it's too late to start living a godly life, maybe God just won't forgive them, doesn't want anything to do with them, they think. Maybe consider sharing this video right now, and you can watch it with them live. uh, You can share this video, and someone might be scrolling through social media tonight and need to hear what we're going to be talking about. Because the thing with what we're going to be talking about tonight is it isn't the sort of thing that only applies to certain people in a certain moment. So it applies to all of us all the time. Because we're all going to be struggling with this. And we see that as we were talking about last week with King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is a good king. And yet we see at the end of his life, at the end of his story, these sad, sad words. Chapter 20 of Second Kings, the very last thing we hear from Hezekiah. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. This is a word about the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the people of God. He says it, it, this word is good. And why does he say that? He says, For he thought, why not, that there will be peace and security in my days. And when we see that disturbing picture, this is the last thing we hear about a good king other than just the summary statement about his life and death. 
this is the last thing that we're going to hear, and, and he is focused on, at least it's okay for now, the destruction will come in some future generation. Now, as we turn to Manasseh, we should keep that in our mind. We should keep in mind that, that this is the context into which the next king is going to take the throne. And we see, I think, in that, a hint of why Manasseh goes so wrong. Because even though his dad did so many pleasing things and, and set Judah in a place that was better than it had been in a long time, he's still thinking primarily about himself. Let's turn to chapter 21 of Second Kings if you want to look there with me in your Bible, and we will see what happens with Manasseh. It says, When Manasseh was 12 years old, he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. What do we see here? Well, we see a son doing what often happens, uh, one generation rebelling against another, but this is an extreme form. Hezekiah had, had cleaned up Judah, and Judah hadn't been particularly faithful, but had been better than Israel, the kingdom that had already fallen to the Syrians as part of God's judgment. It had been somewhat better, but but if there was a way to do what was displeasing to God, it seemed like Manasseh went out and sought it out. Not only does he re-erect the high places around the countryside, those are places where other gods, not the Lord, would be worshipped, or some distortion of the Lord might have been worshipped, but, but often the native gods of that land, of the land of Canaan. Not only does that, he actually erects altars in the temple of the Lord itself, and not so that more people can worship the Lord. That would have been a a misguided sort of attempt at, at leading worship. But no, he, he erects altars, and those are going to be used to worship false gods. He erects Asherah poles. They've been chopped down, these poles that people would go around and worship goddesses in the land. He, he does all kinds of despicable things. And we see that come to the head in, in verse 21, where he even offers his son on the altar. He burns his son to death, worshiping some god and and we we know who get, who that probably is that he was trying to worship because the bible says over and over again all the way back before the people go into the promised land not to do this particular practice that the lord obviously rightly considers detestable to worship the god moloch and and yet it seems as though manasseh gets wrapped up in the worship of moloch and so he's he's actually doing child sacrifice he, we we've gone just in a horrible direction from a, a little bit of selfishness in Hezekiah to just outright rebellion against the Lord. And and yet here, I think maybe it's not as different as we might think. Hezekiah had just 
a little bit of sin going on, we might say. He, he wasn't quite getting everything right. But why is Manasseh doing all this? And it very well could come to the same root that led Hezekiah to think that that prophecy was good, that the nation would be destroyed, but not on his watch. Because Manasseh was probably doing this to try to boost the prosperity of the land. You see, many ancient peoples thought if you worship one god, that would be a good thing. But if you get favor with a bunch of different gods or gods that were particularly useful, allegedly concerning whatever you were trying to accomplish, you might do even better. And so why not build all kinds of gods, get all kinds of gods happy with you, and, and things would go really, really well. And we don't know exactly what situation was motivating Manasseh to do this, but it probably had to do with his own self benefit. He, he was looking at how to be perhaps more powerful. Perhaps he was trying to get some gods to, to have favor towards him so he could break the, the situation where he was a vassal of the Assyrian Empire, where he had to pay off part of the revenue that his country had just to keep Assyria from coming and destroying him. Maybe he just wanted more taxes coming in. Maybe he wanted more successful armies against his own enemies other than Assyria. We, we don't know for sure what it was, but what we can be pretty confident in is he thought that by worshiping all these gods, somehow things would go better for him. Same basic thing that Hezekiah was thinking, only Hezekiah didn't let go into his worship of the Lord. It speaks to the nature of sin, I think. Because a little bit of sin seems so harmless, and yet that little bit of sin provides the highway to a lot of sin. And and so Hezekiah can strip out most of the sin and, and, and perhaps as much as humanly possible, of the religious sin in, in the country. And yet that little bit of sin allows all that stuff he fought against to come roaring back. It made me think of Easter grass. You know that, that, that plastic grass that you put in Easter baskets or have in Easter decorations? We have some of it up at Little Hills that we've used for decorations in years past for Little Hills and Faith Tree. And... and it's neat stuff. It looks so happy at Easter time, and this stuff is sort of iridescent. It's really pretty stuff. And yet, it seems like there's just a little bitty bit of it, but I think it's trying to reenact the, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes or something, because while there was only this little bit, it's everywhere. You're, I'm constantly finding it somewhere in our space. I don't know where it all comes from. There must be a little elf that brings more in each night or something, because it's all over the place. And if you've ever had that around your house, you've probably had that experience. It's everywhere. Or or this weekend I, I was barbecuing and sort of the same thing. A little bit of smoke coming out of the barbecue pit, trying to smoke the different meats. And, and if you ever spend time out barbecuing, you've probably had this experience. It doesn't look like that much smoke. And you want lots of smoke to get all the meats nice and smoky. But you know what? You walk away from that barbecue pit and you're so hungry because you can smell all that smoke all over yourself. And you're thinking... How did that little bit of smoke become so present? And, and if you try to deal with it, you say, okay, I'm going to get rid of that smoke. I'm going to take off my clothes, put on a fresh change of clothes. Still smell like smoke. You have to w wash it all off. It's all over you when you've been barbecuing. It, it, and so just like that Easter grass, it's all over the place. And, and that's what we see with sin as well in our own lives and certainly in the lives of, of the people of Judah. 
might have seemed like a little bit of sin smoke going on in Hezekiah's life, but it was all over him, and it certainly was all over Manasseh. It just seemed to get bigger and bigger, and and the the more we we smell that aroma, as delicious as that barbecue is, it, sin smells delicious too, and so we want more and more of it, and so we we immerse ourselves in the smoke, and then it just is a repeating cycle. Not only does it draw us in more and more, and that's what we see with Manasseh. But it also has lasting implications, and that's what we see as we turn to the next part of 2 Kings. Take a look at verse 10. It says, And the Lord said by his servant the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day that their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we see a lot there. We see God's judgment, and we see even in God's judgment, even in God's judgment, how Manasseh continues to do more. Now he's shedding innocent blood as well. Yet you think, well, it's just this king. Why why is God doing this to the whole country because of this king? Well, but note what's happening here. Not only is Manasseh doing this for himself, but we're told that he's leading all of Judah into it. He's inviting the people to be a part of this, and apparently the people want to be a part of this. But Manasseh is the leader, as the one who, who's been called to, to shepherd God's people as David shepherered God's people as the Messiah ultimately shepherds God's people. He's not shepherding them towards the Lord. He's shepherding them away from the Lord. So this sin builds up. And notably here, it's an intergenerational sin. Hezekiah tried to clean things up, but, but Judah had been sinning for a very long time. This sin was embedded in the culture. And, and so even when they were trying to do better, on their own effort, they weren't going to get very far because they're going to fall right back into their culture. That's what we see with Manasseh. He saw what his dad did, and yet that little bit of sin in Hezekiah's life seems to expand. It brings judgment. It brings a preview of God's ultimate judgment. And, and notice how God explains what's going to happen. First, he says that it's going to bring tingling ears. The, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to be so serious that anyone that hears about it, their ears are going to tingle because of how frightening this judgment is. And indeed, ultimately, the exile will, is something that we still talk about today. 
And when God brought that judgment, it didn't just affect the people in that moment, but it was a, a declaration. It was an announcement to, to anyone that, that pays attention to the Lord. God is holy. He takes his, his calling to his people seriously. And this people who, who snubbed him and turned away and worshipped other gods. This is a preview of what ultimately comes. This is why we should turn to him now and not wait. This is why we shouldn't just do whatever we want in our lives. This is why we shouldn't just figure that anyone that's worshiping any God will eventually somehow be okay. God says to pay attention that we actually worship the one true God. And he demonstrates that in that moment, in a very physical, demonstrable way, as the, the Babylonians ultimately carry away the people of Judah. So that as people reflect on that, they would realize that God actually cares that we pay attention to him. He's a loving and merciful God, but we have to actually turn to him and not away from him. What kind of destruction is this going to be, this tingling of ears level of destruction? Well, we're told that it's going to involve a plumb line, a, like a, a, a builder will use to, to determine perhaps how to build a building, but also determine how to intentionally destroy a building. That's a whole craft, isn't it? If someone is a demolisher of buildings, especially if you're talking about skyscrapers or something, they have to put in special explosive charges so that the building will fall properly. Well, God is both an expert builder and an expert des destroyer of that which needs to be destroyed. And he points to Samaria and says, see what's happened to Israel? See what's happened to King Ahab's land? That's what's going to happen to Judah as well, because Judah has chosen the same path. They had the opportunity. They, they, they had this line of David that I have promised to be with forever, and I've been protecting them, and I've given them this land, and yet they choose to worship these other gods. And so, they will receive an intentional exile. They will be forsaken and sent off to another land. And, and it's not going to just happen. God's going to be in control of it, and that's what's clear we see if we turn over to Second Chronicles. It says, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Notice, God's the one that brings that army there. And this is just the first wave. Manasseh is carried off. The rest of Judah isn't yet carried off. But but it's a start to this process, and it indicates if God can carry off the sovereign king of the land, well, he can also carry off the whole land, and that's what ultimately will happen during the Babylonian exile. So so this, this preview is of what's going to happen when God cleans the dishes. He uses this metaphor here. He, he's not going to just sort of wipe the dish off, dust it off, and try to get most of it off, and it'll be sort of like when you go to a restaurant that's not very good and some of the maybe melted cheese is still stuck on the plate, and you say... I didn't order anything with cheese. It's not going to be like that. No, God's going to scrub that plate perfectly clean. It's going to be sparkling. He's going to get rid of all the sin, and that involves actually exiling the people. We're told that wild animals will roam Jerusalem, this currently prospering city, because of how complete his judgment will be in that moment. And in that, then, it reminds us that we should approach the final judgment seriously, that, that God will do that and even more, ultimately, because... God isn't going to allow sin to ultimately remain in his created universe, in his kingdom. He will wipe it all clean. And we're challenged to think, do I want to hold on to sin because it makes me comfortable in the moment? Do I want to 
to mostly clean up my life like Hezekiah did? Or do I want to actually turn to the Lord and say, take everything away from my heart that is evil? Purify me, Lord. Most of the time, we're, we're satisfied with almost enough. If we're cleaning, sometimes we'll be very satisfied with that because we're exhausted. We don't want to keep going. But then if you run into something, say you're, you're eating something and you don't like certain foods, we're not usually satisfied with almost eliminating it. I, I was thinking my, my uncle's birthday is coming up this week, and, and he's always loved hamburgers, but not cheeseburgers. And most places, when you go and order a hamburger, they think you really want a cheeseburger. You have to be very emphatic to say, no, I want a hamburger. Now, I love cheeseburgers. I, I don't ever try to do that for myself, but but he doesn't like cheeseburgers. And, and there were so many times over the years that we'd get a cheese, uh, excuse me, a hamburger for him. See, I was even doing it. We'd get a hamburger for him and, and it would be a cheeseburger and you, you'd take off the bun and you'd try to peel the cheese off for him and there's still a little cheese stuck to the bun or whatever. He, if he saw it, he immediately would know he didn't even want the burger at all because he didn't want any cheese on his burger. Or imagine a, a nice piping hot pan of biscuits and gravy. If you're trying to remove the gravy, you're not going to be successful. It's soaked into the biscuit. And and trying to correct those things is almost impossible. And that's the same way it is with trying to remove sin in our lives. If we think I'm going to try to improve, we're we're like we're trying to peel that gravy that's just blanketed all over those biscuits. And and you get most of it off, but the biscuit's still soaked in gravy. That hamburger is a hamburger, yes, but that bun still has hints of cheese on it. Hezekiah trying to follow the Lord. Manasseh here isn't trying to follow the Lord at all. And wherever we are, we might be somewhere in between those points. But the key thing is we need to recognize that the first and most important step that we need to do and the step we need to do repeatedly is come to God, the only one who can actually remove all of that gravy that's soaking into us. Be made pure. We can't do it on our own. We see later on, after the Babylonian exile, the, the people of Judah try to do it on their own. They try to keep the law. They're going to be the best law keepers in the world. And in fact, the, the, the worship of idols pretty much goes away after that. They're reformed in some sense, and yet still they're going to miss it. And we see that as the teachers of the law interact with Jesus. Here's Jesus' reflection on the best and brightest of the people of Israel at the time that he's ministering. It says, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are seeing Jesus doing miracles, and they say, but we're still thinking maybe you're working for the devil. How about some more science, Jesus? Prove it to us. Prove it to us that you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, this is a wicked an adulterous generation. I'm, I'm the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And, and there's so much symbolism in that statement. And, and the first part we we don't want to miss is the language he uses to refer to 
the the religious leaders, the people who everyone would have thought were the most holy people in the land. He calls them a an evil and adulterous generation. That that image of adultery that's used over and over in the Old Testament to talk about how the people of Israel would go and chase after idols. He uses to these these teachers of the law who certainly weren't worshiping idols, but like Hezekiah, they still were allowing sin to grow in their lives. They were self-interested. They didn't want to believe Jesus because he was a threat to their work and their ministry. He, if, if Jesus were who he says he was, and indeed he was, then everything they were working for was going to come apart. They didn't, people didn't need these teachers of the law to tell them how to work out holiness in their life if the Holy One himself was there to give that holiness to people. So Jesus says, I'm not going to give you some miraculous sign that that proves to you who I am. I'm only going to give you the sign of Jonah. And in that, he was referring to just how Jonah would spend those days in the belly of a fish. So too, Jesus would be buried for the same length of time or thereabouts, at least symbolically. He'd be in the earth for three days as Jonah was in the fish for three days. Now, many commentators look at the book of Jonah and say probably part of the reason that the Ninevites responded so emphatically to this preaching of repentance that that Jonah went and did was the fact that he looked like he'd spent three days in the belly of a fish. And maybe he explained what had happened to him on the way, and people are saying, well, if if this God can can take this man who's trying to escape him and and have a giant fish made just to swallow him up and swallows him up and he stays in that fish for days and then gets spit out and then shows up here— Maybe we ought to listen to him. And likewise, when people saw that Jesus would go to the cross, but then triumph over death, the response should have been, maybe we should listen to him. But those with hard hearts didn't listen to him. What did they do? They tried to come up with stories to talk about how Jesus' body had been stolen and, and tried to distract, and they tried to persecute the very people who had seen Jesus resurrected to hide what had happened. Jesus points to the, king, the queen of Sheba, who had come to hear Solomon's wisdom and says, I'm here. The God of the universe is here. You want wisdom? I'm here. And yet, while, while that queen long ago would come from a far land just to hear of a lesser form of wisdom from Solomon, you won't even listen when your God is speaking to you. So we see that things haven't really changed. The people had tried to clean their own dish, but the cheese was still stuck to it. Will they repent? Well, we see that Manasseh sees this stuff happening around him. And for the longest time, he has a hard heart and he just keeps doing more and more evil. We see the Pharisees, they they see Jesus. They hear his ministry, but they didn't repent. Challenges, are we going to repent? When we face God's judgment, when we become convicted that what we have done is wrong, do we repent? Do we entrench? Do we run? What do we do? Now, sometimes we we make excuses. And just like the Pharisees, we try to build this this wonderful picture of holiness around us because we want to believe that what we're doing is fine and good and God approves of it. Sometimes we we run. We, We think, God's never going to forgive me. But the call over and over again to the Ninevites, to the people that Jesus was ministering to, and to us today is to repent. When we experience God's judgment, we are called to repent. Manasseh is carried off. But notably, that's not the end of the story for him. Take a look at Second Chronicles 33, verse 12. 
It says, when he was in great distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. The Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now, we see lots of examples in the Old Testament where people do the opposite. Kings like Ahab, their hearts were just hardened more when God's judgment came. But here we actually see something promising in Manasseh. He, he comes and repents. He's in exile. He repents, and God hears him. And as people read the book of Chronicles, which was a, a second telling of this history, and it was published later, it would have been presumably during the time of the exile because it actually covers the people being exiled. Uh, perhaps right as they're returning. Traditionally, that's where it's thought to have been written. What was it going to say? It's going to say, you might be in a far-off land and feel hopeless and wonder if anyone can possibly do anything about it. You may wonder if God would even care because you realize that you've dug yourself into this hole of sin. Maybe you've just sinned too much. But as the people who were wondering if God was really going to restore Jerusalem asked those questions in their head, they could look at this story of this king, this wicked king who had, had led to their exile in some sense. In a very real sense, he was one of the, the, the cornerstones of the wickedness of Judah. And could see how he turned to the Lord and the Lord heard him. They could say, the Lord could hear us too. Wherever we are on the earth, wherever we might be, God can hear us. That's the message for us as well. It's important that we recognize wherever we might be, if you're feeling nudged tonight that you should come and repent before the Lord, then my prayer is that you would do that tonight because he will hear you no matter what you've done. He'll hear you, but you can't do it on your own. What happens, what pulls it all together from Manasseh is that he repents. He's done all this evil. But the end of his story is different than the story of his father. Instead of ending on a sour note, we see a note of repentance here. But also we should do that now. And one of the things we can think is, well, I have more time. I can do it later. I, I can enjoy the, the sins that I'm doing for a while longer. It's just too much trouble right now. Then I'm going to feel obliged to go to church and, and study the Bible all the time. And I'm going to have to act holy and uh, I'll, I'll wait a little longer. We shouldn't wait. Because here's the other thing that we do see. This is a hopeful story in an important sense that the Manasseh moves from his bad attitude to a better attitude. And, and yet, and yet the damage is done. When we sin, when we sin like Hezekiah did at the end of his life, when we sin like Manasseh does in, in presumably the majority of his reign, the damage is done. You see, we're, we're told here that Manasseh repents, but at the end of his life, while he repents, many of the people of Judah continued to worship at those high places. We don't get all the way back to where Hezekiah was. He's led other people astray. We need to think about what are the implications of my sin. And, and even if I knew how, exactly how much longer I had to live, and I, I knew that I could skate by for a while longer before I came to the Lord in repentance, what damage am I doing to others? That's what Manasseh does. And of course, we also don't know that we'll have the chance for repentance later. So we should act now. You wouldn't wait to repair your home, would you? I was thinking about our building up at Little Hills, and you can see this picture here. It's a picture of the ceiling in my office last summer. There, there are a couple of water spots in the ceiling. I, I thought at the time 
and, and maybe they were at the time just from a previous leak that had been repaired, but had been a patch. They put a patch on the roof, and then it started to get worse this winter. And you can see it looks quite a bit worse there. And then within a few weeks, we had actual holes in the ceiling because there was so much water coming through where while it, the roof had been patched, the water was finding a way to come in and doing great damage. You can see the rottenness that was hidden behind the drywall there that ultimately had to be dealt with. Rottenness that, that meant that all the drywall needed to be taken down in a significant portion of that office and replaced. And the entire roof over our little storefront had to be replaced. You see, that patch wasn't enough. And when we try to, re to patch our sin, it isn't enough. It's the water of sin is going to keep working through and keep destroying and keep being corrosive. Sin is corrosive and it's expanding like that water was expanding on that ceiling. But God is faithful. We can trust that God hears our cry. And so we can call and have it repaired now. We can call out to him wherever we are by praying to him. We don't want to continue in sin just to see how much grace God can ultimately give. As Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Our calling is to turn from sin, and not on our own, but like in that best moment in Manasseh's life, to turn to God and to recognize that we need his help. And to turn as soon as we can, that unlike Manasseh, the Lord might be using us as an instrument of his recreation rather than allowing ourselves to be used as those who bring about the damage of sin. God can work in, all, in seemingly hopeless cases, hopeless cases like me, hopeless cases like all of us. But we don't want to wait. May we not wait tonight. Would you pray with me? Father, so often we struggle to, to recognize the damage that sin is doing, and my prayer would be that each of us would see the place in our life where we're still spreading that corrosiveness and we might be confronted and, and convicted by your spirit to, to flee it and to run towards you. Lord, might we realize that we can't clean it up on our own. We'll be like the Pharisees creating a new, better-looking veneer, but that rotten wood will still be underneath it. But may we come with true repentance that, like the Ninevites, as they heard Jonah preaching, we might turn towards you like Manasseh did in his exile. We might realize that we have hope, that you are a God of love and mercy who, as we turn in repentance, offers grace upon grace. We thank you for that grace and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a joy it has been to be here with you tonight. And I hope that you are not only following on Mondays, but that you can get involved in some of the things coming up. Last night, we we were together again, singing praises to God and studying his word. What a joy that was at Little Hills. It'll be great to have you there this coming week. We have so much coming up this week. We have men's Bible study on Thursday. We have Saturday morning songs for our temple. You can check out our our week-long Bible studies on the Psalms. And then, of course, 5.30 next Sunday, you can join us for worship in person or online. I hope you'll join me next week at 7 p.m. as we continue this series, Bad Attitudes. We're going to be looking our last few weeks of the series at some New Testament bad attitudes. Can't wait to have you there for that. If there are any ways I can be praying for you this week or you have any questions, feel free to leave a comment in the comments below. Shoot me an email at the email address on screen. It's truly a joy to hear from you. 
hope you have a blessed week, and I hope to see you at some of these upcoming wonderful opportunities for us to study God's Word and praise Him together.